So we're starting our Christmas series today, and it's called Gifts Fit for a King. Gifts Fit for a King. And in this series, we're going to be talking about what is one of the most familiar parts of the Christmas story, the wise men giving gifts to Jesus. And we're going to focus more on the gifts themselves than the givers, because the gifts actually can communicate a lot to us if we'll actually look at them and listen to what they have to say. They really do a lot of, of picture painting. They, they paint these pictures of Jesus. They point to him, who he is, why he came, what he did. Um, they tell us about his role in ministry as Messiah. So we want to focus in on, on the specific gifts that the wise men brought and gave and see what we can come away with because they certainly were treasures in themselves, but there is certainly a lot of treasure for us to glean as we look at those gifts. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks. And so let's jump in together to the account of the wise men and bringing their gifts to the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at just a few verses of this very, very familiar chapter of God's Word. Uh, part of what we know as the Christmas story or the Christmas narrative. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says this, After Jesus was born, and uh, if you're comfortable circling or highlighting or underlining in your Bible, uh, if you haven't already done so, I would recommend circling or underlining after Jesus was born. That's very key, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. Um, But after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, I know that I said we're going to focus more on the gifts than the givers, and I meant that, and we will, but I still want to make sure we understand some facts about the wise men, these mysterious people that came from the East to worship Jesus, um, to to make sure we have some foundation laid uh, about them before we go forward, because there's a lot misunderstood about the wise men, and there's a lot assumed about the wise men uh, that simply is not the case or that we simply just don't know for sure. And the biggest thing we know about the wise men is that there's a lot we don't know about them. That's the biggest thing we know. Um, we do know that they came to Jesus a long time after he was born, uh, not at the manger with the shepherds, unlike the nativity scenes that we all love and we see all around us. Sorry to burst your bubbles, but uh, the wise men were not at the manger. They weren't there with the shepherds. They didn't come right behind the shepherds. It was at least a year, if not closer to two years, before they came, just because of the region they were uh, from. And uh, so that's not accurate. Um, in, as far as the Christmas tradition usually goes. Uh, but we're, we're never given their names. We never know their names. That's another thing that is part of legend that uh, you, you may have 
uh, through the years, heard different names attributed to them. We're never told their names, ever. The, the people known as wise men in this account, they just mysteriously show up in Scripture, right here at this part of the narrative. And as quickly as they come on the scene, they leave it. And you never hear any more about them. Uh, so you never know their names. We don't know how many there were. So that, that whole thing about the three wise men, you know, that's, that's not definite by any means. In fact, probably there were more than three. Most likely it would not have just been three. Um, culturally and practically, the wise men and people from the East and really anybody from that whole part of the world at this time when they traveled any great distance, they made sure they traveled in, in large groups. Uh, they caravanned it. Uh, there were a lot of reasons for that, but most likely that was the case here, that it was a collection of wise men from the East. And specifically, uh, we don't know where in the East they were from. We're just told they were from the East, and, and there, there were a lot of different places that that could mean. Um, there's maybe some clues, and there's reason to maybe narrow in on uh, what we know as Iraq and Iran, which would have been Persia and Babylon. But even that, we don't know. So we don't know exactly even where they're from. What's my point in all of this? That there's more unknown than known about the wise men. More unknown than known. And that's okay, and it, and it should be okay with us, because... It's meant to be that way. The fact that there's more unknown about these men is, is intentional. It's supposed to be like that. And the reason for that is because the wise men's part in the story, much like the shepherd's part in the Christmas story, is about who they saw, not who they were. That's really what their part of the Christmas story is about. It's about who they saw, not who they were. And Christian, that's what should be true for the story of our lives too. Our, our lives and the story our lives communicate should be less and less and less about us and more and more and more about the one we know, about Jesus, our Savior. We, we need to all say with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he must increase, I must decrease. That's what should mark our lives as well. Um, what we can be sure of related to the wise men is this. The way the wise men were brought to Christ is the same way we are brought to Christ. God does the revealing, the leading, and He empowers the believing. He, he always works that way. Always works that way. It never changes, and neither does He. I don't mean that, that we all can expect to see some spectacular star in the sky, you know, leading us to Christ. I'm not saying you should look for some mystical thing to happen, uh, some very specific, powerful vision for you. I, that's not what I'm trying to say when I say that the way the wise men were brought to Christ is the same way we were. My point is that God directly intervened in the lives of these wise men. He, he directly 
communicated to them. He reached them where they were. He used what they knew. They were stargazers. They were star watchers. Actually, technically, they were astrologers, and that's not a good thing, but that's what they were. That's what they knew. And yet they were, they were searching for more. They were looking for this, this promised one that very likely, I personally believe, they found out about through the Jewish Scriptures, through the prophecies and promises contained in Jewish Scripture, that very likely, I think, they had and were influenced by because of Daniel, who 600 years earlier had been a wise man. In fact, he was the chief wise man. In the, in the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia. And knowing what we know about Daniel, I think it is not at all a stretch to think that his influence and his impact went far beyond his lifetime and set the stage for generation after generation of influence and familiar, familiarity with the Jewish Scripture and the promised Messiah. So I believe that even though they were astrologers and and kind of uh, soothsayers for the, the Persian kings, I think that they were already looking into the coming king and the coming Messiah. And I, I believe God met them where they were and used what they knew. My point is that it was obviously the Spirit of God that caused them to desire to know about the Messiah. It was the Spirit of God that drew them to search for and, and want to find out about this, this coming one and about the God who would send them. And it was God who presented this star. We don't know what the star was. We don't know what kind of phenomenon it was. There's all kinds of things you can read about that, that uh, people think that this was what the star probably was. Or, or no, it was that. It was that kind of phenomenon. And they'll give you all kinds of explanations. We don't know what the star was. And that's not the point. We don't need to know what the star was. We need to know and remember that it was God who presented it. It was God who made it. It was God who showed these star watchers this one particular unmistakable star that pointed to the promised Messiah. And it's the same thing for all of us. For all of us who know Jesus Christ personally as our Savior. For all of us who came to Christ, it was no less spectacular for us as it was for the wise men. Because what we know clearly throughout Scripture is that for you to be seeking Jesus Christ at all, God was drawing you to Him. God was giving you that desire. God was leading you to Him. You didn't do that on your own. Why? Because we're all, outside of Christ and apart from Christ, we're all dead. We're spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians tells us. Dead people don't do anything except stay dead. And so it was the Spirit of God that awakened your heart and drew you to the Messiah. So God, just as He did with the wise men, He did for you and me if we're in Christ. He did the revealing of, of Christ. He did the leading to Christ. And He empowers our believing in Christ. Just as was true for the wise men. And we'll, we'll see more of that in just a minute. Um, so, the wise men came to Judea 
And they came straight to Jerusalem. And as you can see in this familiar passage, we won't look at it verse by verse, but, but I, can, I can kind of summarize for you, and you know the story, a lot of you, pretty well. Um, they came right to Herod. They came right to the palace. Why? Because in their mind, they know we're searching for a king. We're searching for this new king, so we might as well start where a king should be, right? We're going to go to the, the palace. We're going to go where the king lives. Surely, if we saw this great star, and, and this happened a, a year ago or two years ago, everybody would know about it, and he's probably already there, and he's been accepted, and so let's go to the palace. That's where we're going to find this new king. After all, they've had plenty of time to, to put him in, into place and to honor him, and so surely we're going to find him there. I mean, it's been almost two years, right? So they go, and there's no Jesus there. There's no new king. It's the same king that's always been there. It's Herod. And they say, where is he? Where's, where's the new king? We saw his star two years ago. Where is he? Help us out here. And the, the Scripture tells us in the next verses that Herod was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod was, like many current and modern rulers that we know, power-hungry, and egomaniacs. You know, that's what he was. Historically, we know that Herod wiped out everybody else in his family that could have possibly had a shot at the throne. He wanted it all. And he was incredibly paranoid. Anytime he suspected anybody not being just totally loyal to him or having an agenda opposite of his, it was off with their heads, literally. So Herod was, was constantly afraid of losing the grip on his power, just like people with great power often are. And Jerusalem was probably troubled because they knew what he was prone to. They knew he could go off in these fits of rage, and they knew that he could order mass executions at the, at the drop of a hat. And so they were troubled too, like, uh-oh, what's going to happen now? What's, what's coming for us now that Herod's heard about this new king? So there was all this uncertainty and, and, and trouble. And so Herod calls uh, the chief priests and the scribes and experts of the, of the Jewish Scripture, and he says, hey, where is this promised king supposed to be born? Tell me where that is. And so they said, well, we, we know where he's supposed to be born. And isn't it sad that the Jewish leaders and the Jewish experts of the Scripture knew about the prophecies. They knew where he was supposed to be born. They even knew who he was supposed to be, the promised Messiah. But more than that, the divine King, God come near. They knew that intellectually, but it didn't do anything to their heart. They said, well, we know, yeah, I mean, we, we can just go to Micah. Tells us all about it. Tells us that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So he tells the wise men, in Bethlehem, that's where you're supposed to go. And tell you what, guys, when you go and find him, come back to me. Tell me where you found him, where he is, so that uh, so I-, I can go and worship him too. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I, I want to worship him too, just like you. Meanwhile, he's going, <laughs> right? Because he had other plans for sure. So this is where we pick up next in this account. Verse 9 of Matthew chapter 2. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. And what's inferred here is that it, it didn't necessarily lead them the whole way. That's 
That's why they ended up in Jerusalem at the palace there instead of going straight to Bethlehem. It didn't lead them step by step literally every minute. They saw it a couple years earlier. They knew where it was. They tracked it. But then the, uh, the implication and what I think happened is that it disappeared. Um, and, and it didn't just lead them every step. But as, as soon as they left from the palace in Jerusalem and they made their way to Bethlehem, they saw it again. And it says, it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. Notice it does not say infant or baby. Again, time has passed. He's not in the manger anymore. He's not in the, in the, the animal shelter anymore, the stable. Uh, it's, it's been at least a year, 18 months, and very likely even, even two years stopped above the place where the child was. And verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, see, they, they've, this family, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, they've moved into a, a house now, so they're, they're settled. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's these three gifts that we're going to be focusing in on throughout this brief series. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And today, uh, we're going to zero in and, and focus in on, on the one gift, the first gift mentioned, the gift of gold. And the gift of gold, what that shows us or, or pictures for us or points us to in relation to Jesus is his kingship and sovereignty. His kingship and sovereignty. Gold uh, is still very valuable, right? It's still sought after. It's still a precious thing. But especially at this time of, of history and at this time in this part of the world, gold was the best. It was the highest uh, thing you could have. It was the, the most rare, the most precious of all things. It was the purest of all metals. And it was usually something that was designated for royalty. Okay? And so the other thing that, was, that happened that was common is uh, anytime someone had an audience with the king, especially foreign dignitaries, which is what these wise men were. They, they weren't from there. They were from the east. They were royal officials. It, it doesn't at all tell us that they were kings, contrary to that really popular Christmas song we sing about them. Again, sorry to burst your bubble, uh, but we don't have any indication they were kings. Most likely they were part of the court of a king, where they were chief advisors for a, a, a Persian king. Um, but they were, they were noble and they were prominent. And so anytime someone like them with their position would come to another king of another country, they never would appear empty-handed. That's just not what you did. You always brought gifts to give to the royalty that you were coming to see and that you were before. And gold was definitely the most precious and highly valued of those gifts, and it would have immediately recognized we're in front of a king. The gold we bring is recognizing the kingship. The, the royalty and the sovereignty of this person that we're before. And that's what the wise men were doing. They were saying, we are absolutely acknowledging that even though this is just a child, he is a king. 
And more than that, we acknowledge and believe that he's not just any king. We acknowledge and accept and believe that he is a divine king. And that he has been promised for centuries. That he is going to be the savior of not just the Jewish people, but us too. Because the Messiah, though promised to come first to the Jews and and through the Jews, it was always clear that he was supposed to be a Messiah for the Gentiles as well. And that was even told to the shepherds when the angels appeared. It was promised to Mary before Jesus was even born. He would be the Savior first for the Jews, but not just for the Jews, for the Gentiles as well. And that is good news for you and me, because that includes you and me. Aren't you glad for that? That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 1.16 when he says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. The wise men are living proof of that. They're proof that that was a promise kept, a promise fulfilled. So they're recognizing the the kingship of Jesus. They're recognizing His sovereignty, and rightly so. Well, they should. Because even though what they saw before them was literal flesh and blood, a human being, a human child, what I believe, at least in some small way, they recognized is what we need to remember. And that's this. When the Word became flesh, which is what Jesus was, the eternal Word of the Father, the Word become flesh, as John 1 tells us. When the Word became flesh, He didn't stop being the King of the universe. He didn't stop being the King over all the universe. Think about this. Even as a child, Jesus commanded the cosmos. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just incredible? I mean, that should blow your mind when you think about that. That even as a, prior to this, this uh, encounter with the wise men, prior to that, even as a baby, at, while he was in Mary's womb, he was still commanding the cosmos. Colossians 1, 16-17 is an amazing collection of thoughts from the Apostle Paul. He said this, Everything was created by Him, speaking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. My friends, that means that even this child Jesus and even the baby Jesus, while He was fully human and fully infant and then fully child and later fully man, all through His human experience and that human reality, He was still constantly holding the entire universe and all life together. He was holding it all together. He never stopped doing that. How do I know? Because we're still here. Because if at any moment Jesus stopped holding all things together, all things would cease to exist. 
He, he holds everything together right now. And the, the same was true then. And I encourage you to let that thought kind of marinate in your minds because it is just an incredible thing to realize and to contemplate. What, what that means for us is that in all of eternity, there is never a single moment that Jesus is not in constant, complete control of everything. And, man, in a world that seems so out of control, (laughs) isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know? That there's never a moment in eternity past or presently or in the future, or in eternity future. There's never going to be a single time, there never was a single time that Jesus, King Jesus, is not in constant, complete control over everything. Whenever life as we know it spirals out of control, and whenever we look around us and we say, we see that there's no, no control apparently with, with anything, it's good to know that there is one who always will be. In control, always. And his name is Jesus. And as good as it is to remember that, and it is good to remember that, but as good as that is, there's an even greater reality to remember and to celebrate. And that's this Jesus, this King, the eternal King of heaven, the King of glory, traded his throne for a manger, so that we could trade our filthy rags of sin for royal robes of righteousness. This eternal, mighty, perfect King over all the universe, over all time, over all eternity, this King of of just unfathomable glory, traded his throne for a manger, a feeding trough. And then later, probably a very meager dwelling, a a poor house. Also that by coming to him and in him, we could trade all of our filthiness for his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, He, speaking of God the Father, made the one, speaking of Jesus, who did not know sin. Didn't know sin at all. There There was no sin in him. There was no sin around him. There was no sin in his presence. He hated sin just as much as his Father, but he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him we, the sinner, might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened at the cross. And that's why Jesus came to the cradle. So that He could go to the cross, become sin for us, so that in exchange we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 8-9 tells us this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, remember, king, king of all heaven, king of all eternity, though he was rich for your sake, for your sake he became 
poor so that by His poverty, which He assumed and took on, you might become rich. And that doesn't, of course, mean physically rich, monetarily rich. No, it means rich with the riches of eternity, rich with the riches of salvation, rich with the richness of redemption, rich with the richness of grace and glory. Ephesians tells us that we who come to Christ are raised up with Him and seated in glory. That we might become rich, all by Him becoming poor. Church, Christian, true Christmas celebrator, the King over everything gave up everything to give us everything. (laughs) That, That is the true essence of Christmas. That's what we should be celebrating. That's the the true gift of Christmas. That's the gift that keeps on giving. That's what was wrapped up in this gift known as Emmanuel. How many of you how many of you are done with your Christmas shopping already? How many of you? Let me know raise your hand. Wow, not many. You guys need to get on it. Um, how many of you know what you're getting for Christmas? Wow. Well, my son says he thinks he knows, but we'll, we'll see if he's right. Um, how many like to and plan on going out and getting your own Christmas gift? How many does that? Okay, yeah, more. Yep, yep. But, you know, what, what I think is, is always the most special gift is when you know someone um, put a lot of thought and a lot of time and a lot of energy into it, right? When they, when they made it something that's truly specific to you and because they know you, right? And the gift reflects who you are. Or the gift kind of speaks about your life or speaks about who you are as a person. That's, that's always, um, it's always the, the best kind of gift. And when they give you what they, what they know you need even, right? I mean, that, that's always more, more significant, I think. And here's the wise men, and they're coming and they're giving these incredible gifts. And these gifts clearly communicate something very specific and very true, very authentic about Jesus. And we're going to explore more of that as we go into this series. But man, this first gift, wow, they nailed it. They nailed it by giving gold, a kingly gift to the one who is not just a king here in this time in history, but a king over all time, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And that king of kings came to be the gift that all of us need. He knew what we needed, and he knew that only in him would we be able to find everything we need. Only in Him would we have our greatest need met. And that's what He was, and that's what He is. The King of everything gave up everything to give us everything. How how can we not give Him our everything in response? 
Really, that, that's the question I want to leave with you. Knowing what our king, this king, Jesus, gave up in order to give us, how can we not give him everything we are and everything we have in response? It's the only logical result. It's the only, only re- logical response, right? That's what I want to leave you with. Let's, let's pray together. And as I pray, I just encourage you, be praying on your own. Um, and just, man, just give him thanks. Let's just, let's just thank this greatest of all gifts for him being willing to give himself the way he did, to give us everything. Let's do that before we wrap up today, okay? Lord Jesus, you are not just a king, but you are the king of all kings. You are the greatest gift, the greatest treasure, not just of all time, but of all eternity. And though you were and are a king, you made yourself nothing. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, you humbled yourself. You did not grasp on to your divine privileges, but you humbled yourself. And though being completely God, you took on the form of a slave. And you became obedient to death, even to death on the cross. Where you became sin for us, so that we could become the very righteousness of God. You gave up everything, though you had everything, all to give us everything. Please, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, Emmanuel, help us by the power of your Spirit, whom you have given us, to give you our everything in response. Thank you for Christmas. And it's in your great, matchless name, I pray. Amen.